Well, thank you guys for coming. And uh, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13 and part of 14. I will warn you, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit tonight, though, so we uh, will be tying a lot of loose ends together. And uh, just to orient ourselves where we are so far, Isaiah is a prophet, right? He is what we call a major prophet, not because of the significance of his prophecies, although they are significant, but the size of his prophecy, one of the largest prophecies in the Old Testament and books that, uh, in the Old Testament as well. And uh, the prophets were uh, like uh, God's spokesmen in the Old Testament. You think of a prophet, think of like the mouthpiece of God. God spoke through them messages, not only of the current condition, but also future condition and also f- future prophecy. So there were things that were, they would talk about that was happening immediately. There were things that they were talking about that was going to be happening in the near future. And then there was things that he talks about in the far future, all the way through the end of time. So prophecy is a wonderful thing to study. Um, it's something that it's hard to wrap our minds around sometimes, but it's also very encouraging because you see God's plan all the way from the beginning to the end. It's not something that just happenstance that falls together, especially the first coming of Christ and all the prophecies that's fulfilled. Then we have the second coming of Christ and then all so many more prophecies going to be filled. So um, prophecy is a wonderful thing to study. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to, um, to get tied into and plugged into. Um, but it's also, you got to leave room there. Room for the things you're not going to understand, all right? And we're going to talk about some of those things you're not going to understand. Tonight, we're going to talk about some of those uh, things that you may not even be able to wrap your mind around, or maybe you never even thought of it before, uh, but we're going we're gonna to dig into some of those things as well. And uh, like I said, God used these prophets to talk to the nation of Israel, to the nations, and he, he gets their message out with them. We talked a little bit about the person Isaiah. Isaiah was, uh, his name meant salvation is of the Lord. Uh, He was a very educated man. He wasn't someone that was just, you know, off the cuff or off the streets. He had a lot of, he he had a lot of education. He was a cultured man. He was friends with the king. He had political connections. He had, he was much uh, plugged into the society and the political structure and the, and the cultured part of that. He was someone that was a, a part of all of that. And then we see his calling, Isaiah chapter 6, wonderful calling from the Lord, that God called him in the midst of this trouble after this king had passed away. He saw God high and lifted up on his throne. We talked a little bit about that, how powerful it was. God called out, who are we going to send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, Lord, and I'll go. No matter if they don't listen, they listen or whatever. He was fully and completely surrendered to the Lord and the message of the Lord. That was the calling that he had. And then we look at his message a little bit. It's hard. It's difficult. 66 chapters. Chapter 1 begins, and for the first 40 books, there were messages of despair, and the condition of Israel was not good, and God was going to judge them. The nations were bad. He was going to ruin them as well. And, and we read chapter 1, talks about their whole head is sick. They're like, you know, they, they don't listen anymore. 
They're difficult. They're, they're stubborn. They're stuck in their ways. They're heading for judgment. They're not going to make it because God's going to wipe them out. Uh, so the, the message was harsh. And sometimes that's the way it is. God's message is hard. It's difficult. But Isaiah gave the message. He didn't change the message. He gave the message. Regardless of what the culture was or what they thought about it, he gave the message of the Lord. Difficult word. But in that message, there was always glimmers of hope, right? We talked about this reoccurring theme that happens, uh, always starting back in Genesis chapter 3, the very mention of the gospel, the very mention of this Messiah that was going to come, the very seed of the gospel, all the way through the Old, Test Old Testament, all the way through the, the gospels as well. You see this message that this Messiah is going to come. There's trouble, it's a mess, there's rebellion, there's all these things that are happening, but there is a Messiah, a Messiah that is going to come, a Messiah that is going to uh, give hope, a Messiah that is going to be wonderful and counselor and mighty God, and this is a picture of this Messiah that we now know was and is, without a doubt, Jesus Christ, right? Like we know this fact, and uh, this is where a lot of times we watch uh, the news and we hear about the Jewish and the state of Israel and how their view of God is, and they, we realize that they don't accept Christ as the Messiah. They have rejected him as the Messiah, so they're, they stop at the Old Testament. You know, they haven't fulfilled that part of this Messiah, but we know through prophecy and we know through the Gospels that there was no one else who could fulfill that other than Jesus Christ. All the things that he did, the way that he was born as a virgin, uh, the way that all come together in, in Bethlehem, all the, all the prophecies led to Christ, and Christ fulfilled every single one of them. That's why when you ever have anybody challenge you about Jesus Christ, you don't have to apologize for Christ. He fulfills every single prophecy. There's not one that he did not fulfill. And so we are certain, we are sure this Messiah is Jesus Christ. Then we also have a little glimmer of hope because there's always a remnant. Although there's all this darkness and despair, and although there's always this, uh, this disobedience, God always talks about this remnant, a small group of people that are faithful to the Lord no matter what. And, and you read through the Bible, you realize God always has a remnant. He always has this remnant over and over and over again. As we get to the second coming of Christ, he's still going to have this remnant as well. And this glimmer of hope of the Messiah and the remnant and the future kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. So the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah, chapters of judgment, they're messages of God concerning his judgment amongst the people and the nations. First 13 chapters is Isaiah's what we would call sermons, right? He delivered them as messages. Uh, he delivered them to the nation of Judah. It's not pleasant reading, like I said. It was God's mes message of judgment to his chosen people. But then beginning in verse 13, going through chapter 24, we have a series of what Isaiah calls burdens. And, and these burdens through chapter 13 all the way through 24. If you look at verse 1 here, it says the burden of Babylon. Then chapter 15, verse 1, it says the burden of Moab. Chapter 17, verse 1, the burden of Damascus. Chapter 19, verse 1, the burden of Egypt. Chapter 21, the burden of the desert of the sea. Verse 11, the burden of Duma. 
Verse 13 says, the burden upon Arabia. For chapter 22, verse 1, the burden of the valley of vision. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, the burden of Tyre. So what you have here in this section is a series of what Isaiah calls burdens. Uh, a message so heavy, so destructive, so hard that he describes it as a burden. Heavy passages of scripture, heavy in theology, heavy in understanding or trying to understand them. And I'm sure as we look back on this tonight, having the whole written word of God and still going to have some question marks, I could only imagine what Isaiah was thinking, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure his mind was just like completely just blown away. And his heart was heavy because a lot of this he wouldn't have understood, but he knew it to be true and he knew it was heavy. He knew it was a part that was uh, the, the, talking about some of the, the evil and the destruction. And that's the way the Bible is. You read it sometimes, it's full of joy, right? And you rejoice. Other times you find judgment, and when you find judgment and these burdens come along, your heart should be heavy and your heart should dig into it and really uh, soak up these parts as well. And so not only is God of Israel, he's the God of all the nations. I think sometimes we, we forget that. We look through the Old Testament, we see how God worked with the nation of Israel, but we also forget that God worked not only with the nation of Israel, he was God of all the nations, not just one nation, but all the nations. And we must always remember that just because a nation says they do not believe in God does not mean that God is not in control of that nation, right? It's like, hey, we don't believe in God. God hands off here. No, what you're going to learn throughout history, throughout the book of Isaiah here as well, that these nations and kingdoms and rulers were like little pawns in the hand of God. They were nothing to the world. They were, they were the strongest, the baddest, the, the best, but in the hands of God, they were nothing. They meant nothing to God. God could overwhelm them, overtake them. He could strike their minds. We're going to read about Hezekiah in a minute. He has sovereign rule over the nations, and when he desires, he'll do whatever he wishes with them. So he judges the nations. He judges Israel. And you know, the same is true with people. Just because someone said they don't believe in God doesn't mean they're free from God's laws, right? You think about the law of gravity, right? God's law, natural law of gravity. Someone says they don't believe in gravity. They jump off the building at 40 stories up. About 20 stories down, I can tell you they're starting to become a believer, right? When they hit that ground, they're a 100% believer, right? Kind of like one guy says, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, you're going to one day, right? Because the Bible teaches it, and God is true. Whether you say you believe it or whether you say you don't believe in God doesn't matter. It doesn't make you free from God or free from God's law or free from God's rule. It is, it is his rule, and it is God who makes the rules. He is the one who's in control. And so no person, no nation, no rule of God, no rule is above the rule of God. He holds everything in his hands. He's the sovereign ruler of the nations, the creations, and all of it. He holds it all in his hand. The Bible says, do not be, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man uh, sows, that shall he shall also reap. That applies to people, and that also applies to lost people, right? People who know God, people don't, who don't know God. So, first burden, burden of Babylon, the burden of Babylon. We're going to deal specifically with Babylon tonight. And you see this, Babylon's not a newcomer to the world stage, right? 
we already knew about this and we already hear about this before. If you remember all the way back of the talking about the Babylonian Empire in Genesis 10 11. The ruler of the Babylonian Empire in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 was a man named Nimrod. How would you like to have a name Nimrod, right? Uh, it just reminded me today, I wanted to call some people some Nimrods. I'm like, you Nimrod, right? I mean, his name was Nimrod, which meant a rebel against the Lord. How would you like your name to be called a rebel against the Lord? This man was Nimrod. You remember what happened in Babylon, what came out of Babylon, what did they begin to construct? Tower, the Tower of Babel, right? They, they begin to, that, that, that's where the name Babylon comes from, the Tower of Babel, which means confusion. Babylon was the fountainhead for false religion, immorality, and from this ancient Babylon spread all the false religions and all the systems of the world. That's where it begins. And you can follow Babylon right on through the Bible. Babylon's greatest ruler was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody know where Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the Bible? What book? The book of Esther? Daniel, right? Specifically Daniel. He revealed to Nebuchadnezzar this dream of world history. Who was the head, the golden image? That was Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had that same vision of the nations of the world, like different metals. Babylon was the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar came real proud. He built the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. He was so prideful, and one day in his palace in Babylon, he was bragging and boasting about it all, and all of a sudden, God took his mind away from him, just like that. He thought he was an animal. He took off into the wilderness around the Euphrates River in Iraq. He ate grass like an animal lifted up his face towards God, acknowledged God, and God, him, God brought him back to his right mind, just like that. One moment took his mind, one moment put it back. Then, of course, remember Belshazzar, right? The Feast of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. You remember what uh, that was that night? Darius the Mede came, and the city of Babylon fell. Then you go all the way over to the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, which we'll get in a little later tonight, and I'll dig deeper into this, you'll discover Babylon again, all the way in 17 and 18 in Revelation. And Babylon, as we said before, has dual fulfillments. We're going to learn this. We talked a little bit about the prophecy. Sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's symbolical. Well, we're going to see this literal city, and we're going to see the symbolical city of the world system that Satan uses against God's people and against God. That's what Babylon is. So, in, for instance, in Revelation 17, 18, you have the destruction of a religious city, a religious ba Babylon. Then in chapter 18, you see the political and commercial fall of Babylon. So it's a literal city, but it's also figuratively talking of a world system and defiance and rebellion against God. So, Let's begin first with Babylon's disaster. Babylon's disaster. What you're going to have in chapters 13 and 14 is, uh, first of all, Babylon's disaster. Uh, you will see a disaster predicted here for Babylon. Then in 14, chapter 14, we're going to see this ruler that's predicted for Babylon's ruler as well. And they're really two remarkable chapters. Anybody read 13 and 14 before tonight? They really are remarkable chapters. But not only did Isaiah see the coming Messiah, and he made these predictions about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's kingdom in the future, but he also had some prophecies of the, of the Babylon and the nations of the world at that moment. 
And uh, he talks a little bit about Egypt as well, which we'll dig into that in chapter 21 when we get a chance uh, coming up in a few weeks. But here in chapter 13 and 14, I first want to read verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 5. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones and have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts, musters the army for battle. Verse 5, they come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. So he's saying, here's this impending army ready to invade Babylon. And you notice in verse 4, it says he musters up the host of the battle, which means the armies, which the army will be using. It doesn't mean strictly a Christian army or an army of the Lord, but here's the pawns in the hands of God, which would be the Medes, right? So these were pagans that God was going to use to overthrow Babylon. And, and as you see this, you see it, how he's going to come and, and invade him. And the Medes, by far, were not, were not Christians or believed in God. They were total pagans. But yet God says, these are the ones I've set apart for my purposes. Sanctified just means set apart for God's purposes. And like I said before, God can even use the pagans of the world to carry out his purpose, his plan, and his judgment. So these Babylonians would have never even saw this coming, but God did. God had it ordained, God had it ready, and God let them march through. And later on in the book of Isaiah as well, there's a man named Cyrus. He was pagan, and uh, the Lord calls him, he is my ruler, which we know he's not. But God uses these people, even though they're atheistic, even though they don't believe in God, God still uses them for his purpose and his plans. And that's why we can never get discouraged about what's happening in world history, right? Even though we think it's out of control, who's going who's gonna to control Hamas and who's going to control Iran and who's going to control Iraq and who's going to control China and who's going to control Russia? You ever lost any sleep thinking about that, right? Let me tell you, even though they don't believe in God, they're a pawn in God's hands. He's in control. And don't get discouraged when you see all this and think, oh, what is God going to do? Just remember, no matter who they are, where they are, or what they are doing, they are pawns in the hands of God. God is in control over the whole world, and he's sitting on his throne, and he is in charge. And even when the armies invade and they attack, it seems like it's all out of control, but God had it planned, and he had already purposed that for his meaning, his purpose. Look at verse 6 here. Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It has come as destruction from the Almighty. He's saying weep and well. And we see this phrase that we're going to see here. And we're going to track it through Isaiah. You could track it through the other prophecies. And we could track it through Christ when he comes. And we're going to track it through in Revelation. It's a phrase saying the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord's important because, like I said, it's found throughout the Bible. 
Joel uses it a lot. Isaiah uses it. Revelation uses it. And Thessalonians as well. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. The day of the Lord means that God's mercy has ran out and judgment is falling. That's the day of the Lord. And you'll notice it says here in verse 6 that weep and wail. Like this is not going to be good. This is judgment time from God Almighty and those who are on the earth. You need, to, you need to be affected by that. You need to weep and wail. And not only those on the earth, drop down to verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkening and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. So now, not only the day of the Lord affecting something there, but also affecting the heavens as well. That even the stars doesn't shine and the sun is darkened and the moon will not uh, give, give light. And then look at verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of terrible. I think you can realize really quick here what happened, right? You ever been in a car and you shift gears from first gear to second gear, right? Isaiah shifted from something that was literal, that was happening with the impending judgment of the Medes coming down to, 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 these, uh, to, to, to the Babylonians here. And all of a sudden, he shifted gears to a future day of the Lord, right? It, it becomes really clear here when you realize that not only is earth going to be shaken, but now the stars of heaven's not going to shine the earth is going to be shaken and, and the moon will not shine and the sun will be darkened and the stars will not give their light. It's like he shifted into this prophecy. Now it is physical, but now he's talking figuratively or spiritually of another time that's talking about the day of the Lord. And he's saying, I will punish not just the Babylonians, but who? The world in verse 11. So now we're entering into the realm of prophecy. So the physical, literal immediate but now he's shifted into the future day of the lord and like i said that's something we need to look back and try to track through there when you think about something that's happened here and also what's going to happen in the future uh, let's begin in matthew chapter 24 you guys can flip over to matthew chapter 24 uh, keep your place in isaiah there flip over to matthew chapter 24 i, I apologize we are going to do like a, you know the old bible drills this <laughs> this evening Matthew chapter 24, great chapter to read by the way, but Matthew chapter 24, verses 27 through 31, yeah, I could have read a lot more, but let's, I want to stick with the plan, all right, so 27 through 31, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. That sound familiar? All right. Talking about the day of the Lord, the impending judgment all the way in Isaiah. Now Christ comes and he's talking about the last days and he's saying now this tribulation period that is coming, it's going to shake the whole earth and the sun's going to be darkened and the moon's going to not give its light and the stars are going to fall from heaven, right? There it is right there in verse 29. Then look at verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great 
with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the sound of a, of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of one earth to the other. So here's, a, here's an easy way for you to make the connection from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you see the phrase, the day of the Lord, just put equals the great tribulation. All right, you can track the day of the Lord through the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament, we'll say the day of the Lord, but the majority of the time, throughout Matthew and some of the other Gospels and throughout Revelation, it'll be called the Great Tribulation. So if you connect those dots together, you're going to see this, not just here in Matthew chapter 24, but also flip over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we even have a, a better description of this time that he's talking about here. And I know I'm covering a lot of ground, but I want you to get this, and you can go back home and digest it. And then uh, we'll come back and talk about it again, not next week, but the week after. But Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. It says, I looked when he opened the seal, the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the great earth as the fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Wow. See in verse 12 right there, great earthquake, sun becomes black, moon becomes like blood, stars fall from the heavens and the earth. And you see this same illustration of the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. Great tribulation, a period of time where the wrath of the Lamb will come and rectify all the righteous people and judgments and, and set right all the nations and all those who oppose God. And this wrath will be poured out on the enemies. It's known as the Great Tribulation, and this was even referring all the way back in Isaiah chapter 13. Isn't that fascinating? You can just track that right through your Bible. Go back to Isaiah chapter 13 now, right? Go back to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. In Babylon, I gotta wait for you to get there, all right? In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of Chaldean's pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, question for you. How did God overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, fire and brimstone, right? And how did it happen? Immediately, right? It didn't take a whole lot of time. When God's judgment fell, what happened? It immediately, suddenly came. So he's saying the glory of the kingdoms and the Chaldeans' pride, God will overthrow them like Sodom and Gomorrah immediately. And in verse 20, look what it says. It shall never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. Well, you think about this here, you see how many Bible teachers teach this who believe that in these verses 19 and following, they've never been fulfilled because in verse 19, it says that Babylon will be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah, which was suddenly and with fire 
and it says in verse 20, it would never be inhabited anymore. And you think back through history. Was there ever a time in history where Babylon uh, was not, where Babylon was inhabited or that Babylon has been uninhabited even to this day? There are some surrounding villages that might have popped up. And, And even if you remember back in the news for the archaeologists that were so upset when our military did Desert Storm, right? And we was over there. And they were upset because some of our tanks and other things were, and some of our bases and military vehicles was damaging some of the sites of the old ancient city of Babylon. And even to this day, even around that site and the tents of this, you can see there's, there's nothing there. But Saddam Hussein, who most of you probably remember him, very interesting character, he wanted to be supreme ruler over the Middle East. He also hated the Jews and wanted to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But thirdly, he also wanted to rebuild the great city of Babylon. And he began to start that work. He began to take bricks from the old sites and put his face and his name on it, if you remember that. And he wanted to be the greatest king of history, calling himself Nebuchadnezzar again. And on this same thing, he had these laborers and these archaeologists trying to rebuild the temple or rebuild the palaces there in Babylon. He got the Iskar Gate uh, put up. The processional street was done, and he had two international Babylon, fe- Babylon festivals there. But he didn't complete his plan, right? He got, he got ousted before it happened. But if you believe and you see this here, I, I, as you see this, when is this going to happen? Well, I believe it's going to happen when the Antichrist comes. I believe through the period of the Antichrist and through that time that he's going to come and rule and reign, he's going to build this great city of Babylon, this religious political, economic city that's going to rule the whole earth, just like he did here in the, in the book of Isaiah. And that's why it says in verse 20, it'll never be inhabited until its final fall, right? Until its final leader, which we will know will be the Antichrist. And in chapter 17, as we said, it already talks about its religious fall. Chapter 18 as well talks about commercial and political. This is all going to be wrapped into one, commercial, religious, and political, A one ruling order out of the ancient city of Babylon ruled by no one other than the Satan inhabited the Antichrist. Look at what I'll just read it to you. Revelation 18, 2 says, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. It's fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hatred bird. (laughs) Sounds like a place I don't want to be, right? So this will be the center, the hub of all of Satan's work culminating to a point to where he's going to make war with God, right? And here in verse 2 it says an angel comes and starts yelling, Babylon the great is fallen, it's fallen. It sees and we can see this coming for this as well, saying in Revelation chapter 18, it's coming to a point that once it's inhabited, the devils and the fowls and the spirits and all the unclean things, all those things are going to be, are going to be pushed away. Under verse 9 and 10 of Revelation 18, it says, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously and will weep with and lament for her when they see her smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come and you have fallen. Think about that. I mean, boom, just like that. All of a sudden, suddenly, as a shaking at the return of Christ, everyone's looking, and all of a sudden it's over immediately, 
We also know the Bible tells us when Christ returns, how, how long does it take to overcome the Antichrist? One spoken word, right? Immediately, just like that. And, and you read through here and you see how he's talking about standing off and the torment and all the, all the stuff that they've brought to the face of the earth. In verse 19 and 20, Revelation said, They threw dust on their heads, they cried out, weeping and wailing. Alas, alas, the great city in which who is the ships of the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. It says they're rejoicing. The earth is sad because of the treasures, the political system, and all that they had believed in was gone, but all heaven is rejoicing. If you, if you flip back over to Isaiah chapter 14, or go to Isaiah chapter 14, not only the city Babylon, not just then, but future, let's look at the ruler. And I already gave you a hint of who I think it will be, but it says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how has the oppressor ceased and the golden city ceased? So this is the physical part of it, right? This is the immediate fulfillment of the king of Babylon being overthrown. But then if you look at verse 7, you see that it's going to shift gears again. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. So we go from Babylon, talking about maybe Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. Now we're talking about the whole earth. And, and, and once again, as, as chapter 13 switched gears, now chapter 14 is going to switch gears. So as he talked about the natural Babylon and then the future Babylon in 13, now he's talking about the natural leader of Babylon, and now he's going to talk about the future leader. Look at verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. What they're saying is like all of the dead and those who oppose God are, are putting all their stock in this future coming Antichrist, which will be none other than Satan himself, right? All of hell will be there and all the nations that went against God will be there. And look at verse 10. Then they shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? They're like, man, you really said you were all this, but have you just come like us, right? Like, what in the world's happening here? They're they waiting for this glorious resurrection and this, this Satan that's going to come through through the Antichrist. And they're saying, you're just like we are. You can't overcome him either. And, and he's saying, here, all of them come out. Look at verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, Sheol and the sound of your string instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. I mean, look at, the, look at the verbiage that he uses here, right? Think about this. This is like he's saying a king-sized mattress of maggots are waiting for you and a blankets of worms eating your body, right? I mean, that's not, a, that's not a very pretty picture, right? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to lie down on a bed of maggots and cover myself up with a, with a blanket of worms, right? He said all of a sudden, the, prospect, the, the prophecy here in verse 12 now comes and it now shifts even further. And it, it goes into talking about not just the physical and not just the future, but now it's going to go back to the past. Look at, look at verse 12, the, the root of it all. Who is behind all these leaders? Who is behind all those who are opposing God? Who is behind all the nations that war, roar against God? All the Babylonian system, all the world system? Look at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. 
O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations or deceived the nations. Isn't it amazing? Like one stroke of the pen, he went from physical to future, now straight to the chase. Who is it behind it all? Satan. Lucifer. And how thou have fallen, right? And if you read here, Lucifer means the shining one. The one who is impersonating or trying to be like Christ. And if you think here, many Bible scholars believe this is the presentation of none other than Satan myself. I'm one of those as well. I think this is just a, a picture, a, 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 an insight on what really happened with Satan. Look at verses 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you're cut down to the ground. Remember what happened to him? Cut down to the ground, you weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will send into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pits, right, of the pit. So in other words, Lucifer saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Let me tell you, anytime you say you're going to overcome God, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to go down, right? Satan himself, the morning star, the one who was created by God, he says, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to climb above, I'm going to sit amongst God's people, I'm going to have control of the world, and I'm going to sit above God. And what does God say? You're going to go down to the pit, right? You ain't doing that. You're going to be put down into the pit. Now you think about this. When did this fall happen? This is, a, this is always a barn burner, all right? And I might have to ban Jared from asking any questions on this one, all right? <laughs> this is always a barn burner, all right? So, there's a couple different theories out there, right? One of the theories is called a gap theory. Anybody ever hear of the gap theory? So, the gap theory teaches that Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, I mean, Genesis 1 chapter 2 it says the earth was without form and void. It's interesting, right? How could God create something and all of a sudden in the second verse it says it's without form and void? So the gap theory is that in between verse 1 and verse 2 there was a gap of time that we don't particularly know about or that God has not revealed to us. But in that gap between 1 and 2, this is when Satan fell from heaven. Now, we know humans wasn't created yet, right? Because we find out later on that God created humans again. But what you read in the book of Genesis is that God uses two words. He uses created and he uses ordered or separates. So when you read the account of the creation, you're going to hear that there was only three things that God created again or created, and there were several that he separated again. So the picture is that God created the heavens and the earth, and then Satan fell from heaven. By the way, if you're a big dinosaur fan, this is where the dinosaurs would fit in, right? Satan was naming dinosaurs, animals, different things that he would do. But yet he ultimately ascended himself above God. And God put him down to the earth, cast him out from his, 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 his position. 
And, and when he went to the earth, it destroyed it. It was, form, it was without form and, without, and it was void because God had put his hand over it. God had, in between one and two, Satan had fallen. And specifically here in Isaiah, it says that after God created the earth, then it was without form and, without, and with void. So that's the gap theory. Others believe this happened at some other point in time in history. Sometimes believe, sometimes in past, but we must know it happened after he created the world, right? At least at minimum. That Satan fell from heaven. It plunged the creation into chaos. And if you see it here, the pride of the devil. And we know the Bible says the pride goes before destruction. Satan wanted to be like God, wanted to rule God. And God said, you're going down. In verse 17, as he says, he'll make a mate, made the world a wilderness. Satan fell from heaven and the world a wilderness. And, and, and you see about this through the whole thing. And we'll talk more about this later, but... I want to I want to get to the, the last part of what I want to share from these two chapters here. If you go back to Revelation chapter 12, the Bible teaches that the devil is like a roaring lion going back and forth on the earth, seeking whom he may devour. But he fell from heaven, he's on the earth, but it also comes as a surprise that he has access to heaven. Because in Job, we know that he went to God and asked God to, to tempt his servant then also in Revelation chapter 12, we know that Satan is finally going to lose this access. And this is, where, this is where you really need to hang your hat, all right? No matter where he fell, when he fell, or how much power that he had, this is what we know is going to happen to him. Look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. It's not that hard. Who's the dragon? Satan, right? But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called devil and, the sa and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. How short is it? The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Wow. What a day that will be, right? <laughs> I think about the devil. Think about his enemy. Think about his Think about how he comes against the people of God. Think about how he is deceived, he is twisted, he has turned nations and families and people, and he's deceived all these people and all these things are going to happen, but when it's all said and done, he's no match for God. I think a lot of times when we build our theology, we think of opposites, right? You think of, you know, you think of you know, all these different opposites, and most people would say, well, God, the opposite of God is Satan. There is no opposite of God, right? 
Satan is not even an opposite of God. Satan is a created being that under, is under the hand and the rule of God, and he is going to be cast out one day, and the purposes of God sometimes become heavy, and they become burdensome because you say, how long shall we wait, God? How many nations are going to fall? And how about my own life? And how about death? And how about cancer? And how about all the things that you go through in life and all the things you can see and all the injustice? How long will it happen? Well, let me tell you, it won't happen forever. It won't happen forever because God holds them all in his hand. He is completely sovereign. He is in control. And on that day when he says it's time, he's going to kick Satan out into the pit of, into the eternal pit forever. And he's going to be gone forever. And we're going to dwell with God forever and ever and ever. And you see, the devil, someday, he has payday, right? And someday when he's casting that lake of fire and brimstone, it's going to be bye-bye to him and all the enemies of God. And they're going to be in that state forever and forever and forever. And you think about your life. You think about who you are and where you're at. And you think about these things, and I know they're difficult, and I know they're tough. We'll tackle some questions here because I'm going to wrap up a little bit early so we can talk about some of these questions. But, but the, the press, I mean, the point of the whole prophecy is this. It is God who started it. It's God who's going to finish it, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a nation. doesn't matter if it's a ruler. doesn't matter if it's a person. It doesn't matter if it's Satan himself. Nothing will stop or thwart the, God's purpose and plan for his, his creation. Nothing. And he has been over, he is overcome by the blood of Christ and by the word of our testimony. And we can, have, we can have consolation in knowing that when we trust in Jesus Christ, that we're going to be free from the penalty of sin. That's when you trust in Christ, you no longer have the penalty of sin in your life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be free from the power of sin meaning that we can live a sanctified life, we can have power over sin in our life, and then, praise God, one day, one day, we're going to be free from even the presence of sin. And if you think about the eternity with God in New Jerusalem and new, a new earth, dwelling with the Lord forever without the presence of sin or the influence of the devil and living and ruling with him for eternity, let me tell you, they could have this world, right? <laughs> I mean, they could have the world. The kingdom to come is going to be something so much greater. And we got to trust in Christ. And just as he's overcome the first time, he will overcome the second time. And we want to be on his side. That's the side we want to be on. So let me pray, and then we'll get to some questions, all right? Dear Father, we do come before you, God. We just thank you for your word, Lord. And I do pray for our hearts and our minds, Lord, as we try to sort through a lot of these prophecies and a lot of these things that... Uh, come from the book of Isaiah and follow all the way through the Bible, Lord. I just pray that our, our minds will have understanding, our hearts will have faith. And Lord, I pray that we'll be comforted in knowing that you're in control, Lord. No matter what it is in our lives, no matter what it is in our world, Lord, we can trust in a sovereign God. That every person and every nation and every ruler is just a pawn in your hands, Lord. And we trust in the sovereign plan of God. A God who says, he loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. A God who says he has a purpose and a plan for our life. A God who says that he works all things together for, to, to the good for those who love God and are called according to him, Lord. We, we pray that, Lord, for our lives. And even when we face evil, 
when we face the enemy, when we face hard things in our life, we know you're working it together for good because you are in control, Lord, and we trust in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.